This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you very much indeed. Um, the weather is still very warm outside, so thank you for coming on this beautiful, uh, beautiful morning. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ruth Wishart. It's my very great pleasure to welcome you to this morning's event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I know that you don't know who this is, so I'll just give you a few words of explanation, <laughs> if I may. Um, and uh, I should say that this particular event is sponsored by Tangent Graphic, who do a lot of wonderful work with the Book Festival. Now, it will take me less than a minute to introduce today's guest, uh, not because he lacks a rich life and hinterland, but because I would encounter some difficulty reciting it all without undue repetition. <laughs> and whilst I wouldn't necessarily anticipate any deviation, there's always a risk of accidental hesitation. <laughs> His is a ubiquitous presence on radio and television, whether proving Nicholas Parsons remains sentient on just a minute, um, or skewering a raft of hapless guests, and uh, have I got news for you. Nobody survives, of course, in these high-wire acts, or indeed in the comedy circuit generally, unless they have a serious and durable set of skills, and his ability to conjure up improvisation out of the most improbable and uh, unexpected material is quite legendary. But like most lives, He's had his shares of trouble and tragedy, which Lozer recounted, along with the many highs in this autobiography, Only When I Laugh. Please welcome one of Britain's funniest men, Paul Merton. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Um, Paul has taken off his tweed jacket uh, because he thought impersonating a country gentleman probably wouldn't cut it for very long with an Edinburgh audience. <laughs> which brings me, uh, Paul, one of the, there's a kind of, one of the many themes in this book which I found intriguing was that you've got a slight class consciousness or even not so slight class consciousness. Um, I suppose so, yeah. I mean, but I, it's, I, I would be, I, I'd be perverse to be moaning about my lot. Um, but yes, I think there was certainly, you know, in England there is a sort of a, a class thing, you know. Um, and for example, one example of this, I think things have changed obviously a great deal. Uh, when I was first up here in 1984 doing a, a stand-up show, there was, a, there was very few stand-ups. I think there was about eight of us up here at that point before the sort of, you know, the, the gates opened and stuff and everybody, it seemed in the world, become a stand-up for a while. Um, but we were sort of up here and um, the three other stand-ups had been in a radio show, a BBC Two radio show, uh, the year before, called Aspects of the Fringe, and they said you're you're bound to be on because we were on last year, and it's a hit show. And as much as you you know you, you can't predict these things, but the producer came to see me, and he said afterwards, he says, well, um, he says yours isn't the sort of voice we're used to hearing on Radio Four. <laughs> and I sort of thought, well, I, the programmes I really loved, like Just a Minute, uh, you know, uh, didn't they didn't have people like me on there? You know, it, it, people like me, but you know, you know what I'm saying. So it was a sort of um, I had to sort of uh, change Radio 4's ways before I could build my career on the radio. <laughs> Happily for the rest of us, but there is a bit of a chip in the shoulder there because uh, you know I, I noticed, for instance, you, uh, there was a couple of things that really leapt off the page of me. One was when you had to sort of give yourself permission to like jazz, and you had to sort of give yourself permission yes. to read The Guardian. Yes, I don't know. I don't know if the phrase chip on the shoulder, I, I've never been particularly happy with that. I think you can feel a little bit sort of intimidated by stuff. And, and I was intimidated by jazz. I, I didn't know anybody that liked jazz. And I, it was a peculiar position of saying, I wish I liked jazz, because I think I'd probably really like it. Um, but I didn't know where to start. You know, what do you do? You know, I knew Louis Armstrong, of course, but then I knew him from his Hello Dolly era. And, and, and all that sort of stuff, uh, and not his pioneering 20s stuff. I mean, and so I was really... In the end, I bought an encyclopedia about of, of jazz, but what really helped was the invention of the CD, as in the compact disc, because I could put this, in, this compact disc into a machine and listen to the sound quality, and, oh, this isn't the sound of that bass or the, or the sound of the cymbals or something, and slowly I realised there was nothing to worry about. You just, just listen to it. It's absolutely fine. But I had set up boundaries for myself, yeah, you which did. were self-imposed, and I didn't need to be like that, you know. It's quite interesting, you sort of throwing out this thing about CDs in that casual kind of way, because this is a man, ladies and gentlemen, who wrote this book and indeed anything else that he does in longhand with a pencil. With a pencil. 
<laughs> yes, it's true. I it's was true. very happy to see him turn up because he doesn't have a mobile phone, he doesn't have a laptop. No. He doesn't, in fact, have any means of coping with modern life that I can detect. No, I, I, I'm the same as we all were 30 years ago, <laughs> um, without the worry of um, email, you know. Um, but it is, I mean, you know, people, I mean, I worked at the civil service about two or three years when I first left school, so clerical work, you know, it's, I know the, you can't avoid it. I mean, I managed to avoid it because my wife also has email, it has email, so inevitably people will go to her, and she doesn't want to be my secretary or whatever, but sometimes people will go through her to get to me, but uh, I, I, like, I, I like being out of contact. Technophobic? Yes, well, no, I'm not technophobic, I just think, think of all the time I save. Well, there is that. <laughs> Could we just go back briefly, wind that tape back just briefly to the civil service? Because you're mm. with the civil service for something like uh, two and a half to three years. It strikes me that you're such an implausible civil servant that that was a hell of a long time for the penny to drop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they were... Um, they were uh, me and the civil service weren't a good mix, really. Uh, there was, uh, I, I worked at the Department of Employment, which meant that people came in and uh, you know, go for training schemes. I wasn't sort of calling people in and saying, why haven't you got a job and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I did ask them, my last manager, just before I left, I left on February the 29th, 1980. I waited Not that you're counting. Uh, no, I waited for the leap year, so I'd never forget the date. So <laughs> it, was, it was February the 29th. Um, and I said to the manager, I said, well, if I wanted to have a career in the civil service, and he started laughing at this point, I said, what, what, what would be my prospects? He said, the best I can offer you is to forget the last three years. <laughs> <laughs> so I was not a good fix for this, not, not a good uh, fit for the civil service. And as, as you were recounting earlier on, you know, as a way of seducing you into this strange uh, lifestyle, they offered you an uh, introduction to a pension scheme age 19. Yes, I mean, it's one of those things, you know, where the, 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 you know, the manager said to me, now, I know this sounds a bit premature, I was 19. 19 years old, he said, but we have a magnificent pension scheme. And, you know, most 19-year-olds, I hope, would balk at that, you know. You, you, you can't start enlisting in pension schemes when you're 19 years old. And you probably haven't yet. No, no. On the other hand, you're probably the only person in this room who doesn't need one. No, indeed, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> would you like me to offer you some financial advice? <laughs> I was rather hoping for a fistful of tenors, but hey. You know. <laughs> Let's, uh, let's go back, uh, but slightly forward from the civil service bit, because you started mm. off, as we all know, at the comedy store. But I think um, the policeman that you started off with, or the routine about the policeman yes. you started off with, I mean, that was extraordinary. And everybody got well, it was a real piece of good fortune. Um, I, I was, uh, I'd heard about the comedy store. Before the comedy store opened in London in 1979, to want to be a comedian in the 1970s essentially meant either working in Butlins as a red coat or working men's clubs in the north of England or Cambridge Footlights. None of, none of these were any of my... You know, I, I wasn't educated enough, I wasn't northern enough, I wasn't you know, uh, uh, outgoing enough to be a red coat. But when the comedy store opened, essentially it said that anybody could get up on stage and give it a go. But in those early days, they had a thing called the gong show, which meant that if you, were, you, know, you got up and, and nobody laughed at the first ten seconds, gong and off you went. So I didn't want to get involved in that. I waited till the comedy store got rid of the gong show because I was looking for time to be on stage, stage time. Try and get what you want about, trying to build your career by being on stage. You can't do it any other way in the end. And I suddenly had this idea. I was waiting at a bus stop. Uh, it was raining. I was going back to my, I was living in the bed seat. I was going back to my mum's place with some dirty washing for her to very kindly wash for me because I didn't have a washing machine or anything. And I suddenly remembered this TV documentary that I'd seen about three or four years before where uh, in the 1970s there was a group of people in Luton, of all places, who built this sort of LSD factory where they were making the drug LSD. The police came in and raided this place, but there was all this sort of hallucinogenic dust in the air, <laughs> which they didn't know, and so some of them started to experience certain symptoms. <laughs> I suddenly remember this bit in a documentary where this policeman says straight to camera, uh, I first noticed something was wrong when I was sitting in the pub with Detective Inspector Norris, and I noticed that my pint of beer was getting bigger. <laughs> so, of course, immediately I, was, I remember, I suddenly struck the, con the comic contrast between the rather stereotypical thick policeman explaining hallucinations. Um, I, I realised it was possibly a, you know, a, a good comic conceit. So I, I abandoned the, the going back to the, the mum and, and, and went back to the bedsit and spent, you know, over the next sort of three or four weeks writing this idea down. And... And it, it, the first time I did it, it absolutely went down a storm. I mean, people loved it. 
to an extent that it was the first thing I'd ever done at the comedy store. It was only three and a half minutes long, and they absolutely loved it. Afterwards, the compere says, have you come back on? And I, you know, more and more. And I said, I haven't got any more. <laughs> I said, I can do it again. <laughs> so I did it again, you know. <laughs> I'll give you a version of it, just so it's... I mean, I don't know, I, I'll cut out the, ref, the topical references to them. Um, so it was about a police... I, I, I came on stage and I had one of those sort of plastic policeman helmets that the tourists buy in London, you know, and I had a sort of... I had a diary in my hand where I'd written it down, uh, just an assurance in case I forgot it, you know, because I didn't know how was I going to be on stage in front of, you know, uh, 100, 200 people at half past one in the morning in the middle of Soho, you know. So anyway, I, so this is how it went. Um, on Wednesday, 14th of October last, at approximately 10.43am, while Pat rolling along Streatham High Road, I observed a motor vehicle illegally parked outside the all-night Clement Attlee massage parlour. <laughs> I questioned the occupants, who said, urinate off, you effing love child. <laughs> The driver then elopogised and offered me a yellow candy-covered chocolate confectionery known to the uniformed branch as a Smartie. I accepted the Smartie and swallowed it. A Smartie I now know contained an hallucinogenic drug. <laughs> 35 minutes later, while sitting aboard a spaceship bound for the planet Zanussi, I observed Constable Parrish approaching me disguised as a fortnight's holiday in Benidorm. <laughs> Etc. It was something like that, you know. <laughs> but the thing that was really wonderful about that night was being, uh, uh, you know, I was then sort of uh, 25, 24. I'd wanted to be a comedian from a very early age. I'd, I'd seen, you know, seen Charlie Chaplin on television. I listened to Tony Hancock on the radio, The Goons, Monty Python, watching all this stuff, the Marx Brothers. And the first thing I did was such a success that I left that comedy store at half past two in the morning in the middle of Soho, walked all the way back to Streatham where my bedsit was. It was about seven or eight miles. And I was just on such a high. I, I was floated all the way back because I knew enough about show business know that this was kind of, not a fluke, but they'd laughed where I expected them to laugh. But you don't get great ideas like that all the time. And I knew there was a great deal to learn. But to have such a good, positive experience right at the beginning was just extraordinary. The other thing, I mean, you talked about watching all these uh, great comedy acts mm. on film and listening to the radio and so forth. But mm. also, and this is not kind of absolutely typical 12-year-old behaviour. No. You were taping just a minute. Oh, yes. And then you were playing it with yourself. Yes. Off your own tape. Oh, yes. You sort of like, you know, well, just a minute. Um, is, uh, kids love just a minute, particularly, because uh, they, it's very easy to understand the rules and very difficult to, to play. Um, I'm sure there are many fans of just a minute here. I, I could uh, share. Um, Nicholas is coming along later, I think. But here is a, here's a Nicholas. Not here. Not, not here. Not, no, here. not here. But uh, there's a Nicholas Parsons anecdote, which isn't particularly well known. And about three or four years ago, Nicholas was up here, and one of the other comedians started talking to him about Richard Pryor, you know, the uh, African American comic, big stand up comic in the 70s and 80s. Richard Pryor also had a massive drug habit at one point and was doing crack cocaine and all this sort of stuff. And, and Nicholas was hearing these stories about Richard Pryor and he's, his mouth was dropping open. He was astonished. He said, I've never heard this. This is amazing. He's, he seemed genuinely disturbed. About 20 minutes later, he was heard to say to somebody, have you heard what's happened to Richard Pryor's? <laughs> become addicted to crack cocaine. <laughs> the hazard of having a host, of course, who's, uh, you know, in his ninth decade. Oh, he's, Nicholas is now, he, he does admit to it now, he was, he's, he's 92 this year. Indeed. He, um, he predates sound films by four years. <laughs> as Seriously. You never, <laughs> as you never cease to mention in the middle of the show. Indeed. But you do um, have a very good relationship with him, don't you? I think Nicholas is, I, I love him to bits. He's fantastic. He sort of, I mean, he's just, it's how he is as a man as well. You know, he's, really, he's a really nice person. He just spends, you know, fans come up. He's just always a complete and utter gentleman. And I just, I, I, I think he's fantastic. He's sort of, in his extraordinary achievement, he has been hosting the chair in this show now since 1967 and has never missed an episode. I mean, you know, you, you can't get rid of him. He, you know, he's, uh, 
So I, I you know, I, I, I love I him to bits. I hope that's not a job application. Oh, no, 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 no. I wouldn't, no, no. He'll be around for a long time, yeah. Talking of which, when you, uh, I mean, the other long-running show that you identified with is how I got news for you. Mm. And you did, I mean, a, a vacancy over which we'll draw a veil arose on that show. Mm. And um, you did do one gig, I think, in the chair, didn't you? I took over, I, I was the first one to do it after Angus had left. Um, but that was, I'd, I'd watched the job, you know, I watched him doing it. So I, I, it was something that didn't frighten me, uh, because at that point, some people were questioning whether the, the, the programme would continue. But I, the, the programme is more than just the person that presents it. You know, it's other things as well. And in, and in show business, uh, the, the brutal truth is that nobody's irreplaceable. You know, so it, there is always somebody that can do it in a different way sure. or whatever. But by having the guest host, we have extraordinary moments, like Brian Blessed. I was, was <laughs> you know, just an absolute mountain of a man. Uh, and Bruce Forsyth, when, when Bruce Forsyth hosted it, Ian was so confused, he had no idea. <laughs> we did a version of Play Your Cards Right, I think. And Ian is sort of, has, you know, because when Ian's family bought a television from Harrods, they had... <laughs> <laughs> they had the ITV button removed. <laughs> <laughs> That's not altogether untrue, actually. <laughs> like almost everything you see in that show. I mean, I have to say, listening to you just now and talking to you outside before we came on, and here's this kind of jolly giant type figure. When you're on, have I got news for you? You're Mr. Nasty. Am I? Yeah. Do you think? Yeah. Don't I you? I'm, I'm sometimes, I'm sometimes Mr. Bored, or sometimes, <laughs> why am I sitting next to this idiot? But, uh, but they're probably thinking the same thing. <laughs> what about the the rolling chair thing? Because that does work well. I mean, you mentioned these two, but did anybody get it really, really badly wrong? Um, yes, occasionally, occasionally, there is a sort of there's a second show syndrome which happens. Uh, sometimes it's generally people who aren't in show business that sort of uh, they come along. Uh, uh, Anne Widdicombe. Right. Anne Widdicombe hosted it twice. The first time she hosted it, it was sort of okay, you know. Uh, there's a lot of help goes on in the edit and things and, and all that. And, you know, and when people see the final programme go out, you know, you think, oh, that she, did, you know, she was okay, yeah, that was all right. Uh, but then all her friends tell her how wonderful she was and stuff. So when she comes on again, suddenly you're dealing with Groucho Marx. She knows all about, <laughs> that joke's not going to work. I want five better jokes than that and all this sort of thing. And suddenly you've got an expert... Uh, who isn't? And who was dire? And it was, it was, the second one was dire. It was awful. There wasn't a third, of course. No, no, no. But, uh, but you know, you, you have to realise in that position you are being helped by a production team and people who want to make it succeed, you know. So it, it's... Uh, um, the, the, I think probably the, the worst one we had, I'll, I'll pick a non-show business person, was Neil Kinnock. Um, <laughs> simply because he was just so slow in the delivery of the auto cue that even if I imitated how slow he went... You would be, be you drive your nut. You, actually, he went like this. It went, um, hello, and welcome. <laughs> so, have I got news for you? Uh, he, he questioned everything on the auto cue <laughs> in case it suddenly leapt out at him and bit him around the throat, you know? So, that was pretty dreadful. Um, I think they managed, somehow, they have these magic machines in TV. They managed to speed him up without him making sound like Mickey Mouse. I don't know how they did it. <laughs> But he was substantially faster in the programme that went out than he was in real life. What about Boris? Boris, yes. Um, <laughs> That'll do if you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's done very well out of his guest appearances. Hasn't know. he, though? Yeah. I, think feel, that's, feel, that's I feel dreadfully responsible. <laughs> that's a very eloquent silence. Indeed. Tony Blackburn, I met him the other day, and he said, wouldn't it be funny if Boris became Prime Minister and Donald Trump was the American President? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we all shiver at that moment, don't we? <laughs> Particularly old Trumpy, you know. Can't spot the humour in that one. <laughs> um, we talked about you coming up to Edinburgh when there were only eight people. I mean, you were the, one of the comedy pioneers, but it wasn't exactly... It wasn't the happiest of cities for you. No, not in the early days, but I mean... I was thinking was... of your five-a-side match. Oh, yes, yes. In 1987, I, I was up here and uh, doing a one-man show, and I'd opened the first night of the one-man show. Gone back to the venue during the day to check something, and uh, another comedian was walking past as I came out of the venue. He said, oh, there's a football match up on the meadows, and comedians are playing football, which is as interesting as watching footballers telling jokes. But anyway, we went along, 
And I was, I, went in, I was in goal for a while, and I came out and started playing around, and somebody either tackled me from behind, or I, 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 my legs went up in the air, but it, a very, very bad injury. I broke my leg, uh, so I had to be taken up to the hospital. It's no longer there now, the, the uh, one that was just up by the meadows. And uh, then I came out of the hospital, and I was thinking, well, I've got my leg in plaster, but I'll still do the show next week. I'll try and figure out a new way of doing it. Then I was, a, I, because in those days when you stayed in Edinburgh, inevitably wherever you stayed was, was the cheapest you could afford, and it would be right at the top somewhere, you know, always the fifth floor or something, uh, in those magnificent high sort of uh, hallways. And uh, so somebody moved me into a sort of a place where they had a ground floor thing, and then I started sort of, I don't know, I got a pain in my side and I didn't know what it was. I lapsed into a coma, an ambulance was called. For some reason the ambulance took two hours to arrive, I don't know why, but I wasn't really function at that point, uh, rushed into hospital with my friend Andy Smart, and I'm in a cubicle somewhere, and he's waiting for somebody to see me, and Andy being Andy, he's quite keen to put a bet on the 410 race at Doncaster, <laughs> so he, he has a quick looking at me to see how I'm doing, because he might nip off and put this bet on, and sees, uh, according to him, I'm a terrible colour of grey, uh, he calls the nurse, she rushes over, I'm rushed into somewhere, I wake up the next day with an oxygen mask on my face, and uh, it turns out I've had a pulmonary embolism, which is a... a a blood clot on the lung. So uh, while I'm recovering from that, I also developed hepatitis A. <laughs> and uh, I said to one still of the... comes back to Edinburgh. I, <laughs> I said to one of the doctors, how did I get hepatitis A? He said, well, to be honest, you've probably caught it off the hospital food, is what you said. <laughs> <laughs> this is 1987, so I think things have hopefully changed a great deal since then. But I mean, yes, that was, that was the most extreme example. And uh, the one show I did, I had a rave review. It said... <laughs> Come and go and see this man. He's very funny. So people used to queue up by the hospital bed and have a look at me X-rays. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think, but the, the, but the uh, serious point on now, because people ask me why I still come back to Edinburgh, I and mean, we, we're doing ten days at the Pleasance doing the impro thing, and it's just to be able to come up to Edinburgh and have none of the traditional anxieties that you would have as a performer. Is anybody come and see the show? Will I be able to afford posters? Will somebody stick a poster over my poster? What will happen? Will it rain? Will the gig be all right? Will it be the noisy show next door? None of those factors no longer uh, no longer relevant. So I can, we can come along and just have a great time. And it's, it's great to be able to come and just enjoy the festival with none of the normal concomitant worries that you have when you first start Except out. Except for most people, standing up for an hour without a script would be scared and witless. Well, yes. I mean, it is. If it's, it, it, the thing is, it's... A, it's you have to be, yeah, you're on stage for an hour, there's five of you, uh, we, we improvise, it has to be funny. The great thing about humour and, 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 and laughter is you can immediately tell whether it's working or not, so you, you know, you, you've got to make sure, just to say it's improvised isn't an excuse if it's no good, you know, uh, so you've got to be good, you've got to be on top of it. But then after that, that's it, there's no rehearsals, there's no, we don't have to, in a strange way, because the show doesn't exist, there's nothing to worry about, <laughs> you know. I mean, we're on at four in four hours' time, it's, you know, we have no idea what's going to happen, so there's nothing to worry about. But don't check in your tickets, because it's very funny. <laughs> it's a bit like, I think the analogy I quite like is like a tightrope walk, a walking across Niagara Falls on a very tight wire. To him, it's just a 400-yard walk. For the rest of us, we'd be looking down there. But on stage, we're not looking down there. We're just sort of just going that way. Now, I don't want to turn this uh, session into an episode of Casualty, but there was a story... Um this morning in the news, I don't know how many of you are listening to the Today Show, but basically it was about the fact that the army were concerned that they were being given, the troops were given once a week malaria pills and some of them were experiencing severe mental health problems mm. as a result. And that actually happened to you. This is the other medical story in the book, and as Ruth says, it's, it, it isn't, it, it isn't, these are only two little elements of it, uh, two most serious bits, I suppose. It, I was, um, I'd uh, gone to Kenya, uh, just after an episode of who, a series of Who's Line It Anyway, I, I, for Christmas time, a real treat. I'd never been anywhere, you know, Africa before. Uh, took these anti-malarial pills before I started going. And it was one of those sort of uh, regimes where you have to take it for six weeks after you come back. And I just sort of things started to, sort of strange things started to happen. I, I was about to start filming a sketch series for Channel 4, which I'd written and uh, uh, co-written and was really looking forward to that. But... Odd things were happening. I was round at my house, my flat, my bedsit, and uh, the, the, the phone would ring, and I knew who it was before I picked the phone up. And at one point, a friend of mine, Dave Cohen, was in this room, and I, I, I started crying, and I didn't know why I was crying. And then the phone rang, and somebody told me that, oh, there's been a, a riot at Brixton Prison, and they've had to quell the riot with tear gas. And I literally lived about... I know, half a mile from Bixton Prison. So I was thinking, oh yeah, that's it, it's tear gas is coming through the window, that's what it is, it's tear gas. And I put the phone down, I explained to Dave, and at one point I say, I think I'm Jesus. <laughs> you know? 
And the next day, I phoned Dave up, and he says none of that happened. The phone never rang. There was no conversation about tear gas at Brixton Prison. So I didn't know. I didn't know what was. So eventually, what happened is I end up in the in the, the Maudsley Hospital, a psychiatric hospital in, in South London, and I was there for a total of about six or seven weeks. And um, Which it was is a one very of, long time. It, well, it's you, yeah, you, you get used to it quite quickly. Um, uh, but one of the psychiatrists spotted that I, I would have these sort of manic peaks on a Friday, Saturday. So what was happening was I was, I was on two sets of malarial pills. I was on the daily pill, uh, and then I was on a weekly pill. I used to take the weekly pill on a Friday, and it was the weekly one that was causing me the trouble. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, when I first went into the morgue, they say, Do you know, what, what, are you taking any medication? So you show them two sort of you know, forms of pill boxes like that. And they were giving me the weekly one every day for about the first three or four days. So I was, you know, I really didn't know where I was. And of course, being in a psychiatric hospital with other people who were around, uh, well, here's, a, here's quite a nice story perhaps. Um, there's a lot of people in psychiatric hospitals who believe that sort of like people on television are talking to them directly. I started appearing on Whose Line Is It Anyway <laughs> while I was in the Maudsley Hospital <laughs> on a Friday night on Channel 4, you know. And uh, I'm queuing up for my breakfast in the morning, and in the Maudsley, the breakfast was either a hard-boiled egg, peeled hard-boiled egg, or, or an orange, or a bowl of bran flakes, that was it. Plastic spoons, plastic plates, you know, nothing to be, that could be thrown or stabbed or anything like that. And there's a young lad next to me who suddenly spots it, and, he's, and I wasn't particularly famous at this point, I was only doing Who's Line, you know, every so often. And he recognises it's me, and he said, are you Paul Merton? And I said, um, uh, and I was thinking, well, you know, um, what do I do in this situation? I mean, you know, I, 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 I could ruin his life forever, saying, I've jumped out the telly! <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do that. I didn't do that. <laughs> no, I sort of thought, well, the best thing is, I said, oh, well, actually, not many people know I'm here. I'm just keeping it quiet. He said, oh, all right, okay. So I, I entrusted him with a secret, you know. But when I, was, um, when I was doing a book tour for this book last year in Wimbledon, near, fairly near to the Maudsley, I suppose 10 miles away, one of the nurses came along who had read the book and she told me she knew who that guy was that had spoken to me in the queue. His name was John because he was very excitedly talking about it. But she said it was really incredibly helpful for him because he realised that it wasn't a shameful thing for him to be in there because somebody on the telly was in there as well. And so it, it, it took away that kind of sort of, like, oh, it's my fault, why is it happening to me, when he realised it could actually happen to anyone. So that little exchange turned out to be really useful for him. You know. What did it turn out to be for you? Because that's a very big chunk of your... I mean, apart from the else, you were just about to start a series where yes. you then had to get pushed back, and, and presumably all your friends and family were kind of... Oh yes, I had no idea when you were going to get out. No, exactly. I, I mean, from my mind, it was it was a great relief once I because uh, once the, the the you know the psychiatrist said like you know stop taking the anti-malarials. Within the next day, I, I you know things started the the thing I'd been living with started to float away. It started to go, and so I I, I always knew it was that in a way you know I, I, not in a way in a, in a definite way. Uh, that that's what caused the, the, the thing to be in there. But I, I, I think also I always had a sense of humour about the thing. I always maintained a sort of balance. And it is very good. It's a, it's a very good life lesson that, you know, that when people get worried about show business things, which aren't really, in the end, massively important. For example, you know, they said to me, well, the psychiatrist said, well, you, you can sit in this group therapy every day and, you, you know, you don't say anything. You know, and other people are talking about, you know, over here somebody's, is, is recovering from a very bad heroin habit which they've kicked about three years ago. Somebody over here has lost their job or their house. or something. Terrible things. I'm sitting there, my Channel 4 TV series has been postponed. <laughs> How can you say that to a group of people? You know, it's just, it's not really a problem. You know, I'm, I'm, you know I, should be here, I should be doing wig fittings now. I shouldn't really be here. So I kept very quiet about that. Um, so your advice to military had stopped taking the tablets, basically? Well, I, it, as soon as it stopped, it was... It was clear that's what it was. You know, it's like sort of you live next door to busy traffic the whole time and you get used to the sound of the busy traffic. And when it goes, you suddenly go, ah, that's what's been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to... Oh, we don't need to put the lights so up. So the book is not a serious... This is the most serious yes, part. Yes, so. I should, have, I should yeah. say that. That's unfair of me in a way because there are some episodes of the book. That's one of them, obviously. And the death of Sarah, your wife, uh, yes. which was a yes. hugely traumatic episode, which you deal with very... Not pragmatically, but carefully in the book. Well, yes, I think so. You just have to be... I, I think... You know, for her family and her friends and things, you just, want to, you just need to be... You just need to tread carefully, I think, you know. And I, it, it's sort of... I didn't want to get too much into sort of, you know, 
her medical history and stuff. You know, there's just certain things which you have to sort of just be, I think, just careful about, you know. Anyway, having said that, all the other chapters <laughs> <laughs> are about fabulous things that happened, but we're going to take some questions from the audience for a moment. Thanks. For the other Paul, has just put the Could I just, uh, Linda, here, I, I, I just want to try out the sign language thing. I wonder what would happen if I said that I saw this octopus coming down the street the other day on a unicycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very skilled. <laughs> you won't get it. So let's. Let, I think we've got two mics. We have got two mics. So There's let's wait till they come. If somebody, if you want to, if you want to ask, put your hand up, and they'll find you with the mic. If there is a question, There's they will somebody because there. they're very athletic. We'll start yeah. off with the lady there. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Um, when Have I Got News for You first started, there seemed to be real tension between you and Ian Hislop. There seemed to be real sort of niggling between you. And now you seem to be genuinely amused by one another. Can you tell <laughs> us what is the actual relationship? Well, I think when Ian first met me, he, he assumed I was his minicab driver. <laughs> um, I think... There's a certain element of what you're saying is true. I mean, when it first started, certainly we didn't really know each other, but also for the show-busy sort of thing, it, it helped to sort of maintain the sort of rivalry between us that we were two. Because Ian does take the quiz element of it extremely seriously. Um, and I do to a certain extent. But there is a difference between me and him in terms of that. When Ross Noble was on the show once, he suggested to me that we try to score no points at all. And so we went for it and we scored no points. Ian would never do that in a million years. <laughs> Um, but I think, I mean, I do admire him a great deal. When Ian took over the editorship of Private Eye when he was about 27, there was a lot of very sort of uh, experienced Fleet Street hacks who thought they might be getting a job, and so spent a lot of time trying to dig up dirt on Ian. Piers Morgan, when he, one of his more mad phases, when he was the editor of the Daily Mirror, spent a year trying to dig up dirt on Ian. He spoke to his local priest. Uh, they tried to find, and there was nothing. <laughs> He is, there, is, there is no dirt on a year at all, so I, I, I like him a great deal. I, I think he's a tremendous man, but uh, also he's very easy to tease. <laughs> do you get, do you, just a supplementary there, do you choose, do you get any choice as to who you're going to have on your team? No, not particularly, no. I mean, and I think you have to let the producers do that job, you know. Uh, so do you ever get lumbered with somebody you can't? Well, sometimes, well, if it's somebody um, that Ian... Well, there is a sort of kind of tactic, I suppose, that they do. Is that if there's somebody that they think Ian might have, might have a good sort of cross-examination of, it's easier for Ian to do that if they're sitting next to me. Right. Rather than, you know, right there. I mean, he will do it, and he has done it before. But I think it makes it a bit more adversarial if, he's, if there's a bit of a distance, you know. Um, but again, that's sort of, you know, the, the way they tend to do it is if somebody was on the last time sat next to Ian, then this time they sit next to me. So there's not a great science behind it, really. Okay, more questions? God, you'd stand them into silence. No, it's fine. Here we are, gentlemen in the third row here. You say it's not your choice who's going to be on, but when are you going to invite Ruth to be on? <laughs> Do you want to be on? No. <laughs> she doesn't want to be on. <laughs> Actually, one of the, I should say to you, one of the things that was slightly worrying me about this uh, gig today, much as I admire Mr Merton, as you can tell, um, was that I thought, suppose he treats me like one of these hapless characters that he's... <laughs> I mean, the master of the put-down. And when Paul Merton puts you down, you don't get up all that quickly, really. Don't <laughs> I, don't tend to, I don't tend to do it on the programme. It usually is aimed at the person in the middle, simply because they are the figure of authority, and it's, it's more... But you also... I mean, Alexander Armstrong, you know, he's done it so many times, I can start to sort of like have a, a go at him, uh, because you don't want to sort of... You don't want to cower somebody. You don't want to make them feel unpleasant and uncomfortable. I mean, you know, because you want the person in the middle to be doing a good job. But he's done it so many times now, and he still hasn't got better. So I think that... Um, <laughs> so I, I, I do let him know that these days. <laughs> you, you, you write a bit in the book about um, going into the writer's room when you were doing the chair mm. thing and discovering um, that you were the first person who'd ever actually conversed with the writers about, about the script. Yes, that's one of the one time when I hosted it, yeah, because yeah. the, the, the script is written for the people, you know, the, the person that's hosting it in the middle. But not um, for anybody else? No, 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 no. So no. it's all improvised? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, the one time where it won't be is when a comedian comes on and there's been a big news story and they'll have a three or four gags about that. But then, actually, they don't often make the edit because it doesn't, it doesn't feel right. It sort of feels a bit pre-prepared. Um, it's like a... Uh, the impro gigs that we do, if we were to do something that we'd done 
you know, yesterday or two weeks ago or whatever, you would notice the difference. It would feel wrong. Yeah, yeah. You know, an audience would sort of, this isn't quite right. Uh, you sort of, that's the sort of thing you easily sense. So actually, I mean, yes, apart from the person in the middle that's got all the autocue script, the rest of us, Ian, myself and whoever's on, are, are sort of more or less flying by the seat of their pants, you know. That's fascinating because in my cynical fashion, I assumed there was a lot of it scripted. If, if you have... If you have people on the show who aren't show business people trying to get them to act as if it's not scripted, it'd be, it'd be a nightmare. I mean, in the answer to the question, I remember once somebody said, well, surely you, you must be tempted to do bits on the impro that you've done before. It would be, you'd have to imagine, did I do that just now? Was that yesterday I did that? And I've got to try and make this. It's much yeah. easier just to do it. If you're you. If you're you, yeah. But then, but through 30 years' experience as well. You know, when I first started up here, the Comedy Store Players, the gig that I do in London, we, I mean, I just looked at Mike Myers, who uh, comedy fans will know as Austin Powers and Wayne's World. He was, with the, he was in the little group that we were in. And I just watched him, and I couldn't believe what he was doing. It was so fluent, it was, it was sublime, it was funny, it was different accents. He was doing mime, he was, you know, you looked at it in wonder. But of course, working with him was really useful for about six months because you're, you're working with somebody who's really good. And then he left. And when he left, you thought, oh, hang on a minute. The safety net's gone. Yeah, the safety net's gone. We now have to do it. And so that was, you know, that, but that was back in 1986. So through doing it all the time, you, you keep all the other things, like have I got news for you in just a minute. I never get nervous when a new series comes along because I'm constantly doing the impro. But what struck me was that, was that there must have been a certain amount of self-confidence because uh, according to you, you phoned up um, just a minute when Kenneth Williams died. Yes, I wrote a letter, yes. You said, how about me? Well, y yeah, I did. And that's the only time I'd ever done that. Uh, I'd met Nicholas somewhere at some TV thing and I'd mentioned to him about how much I admired the show and he said, oh, you ought to, you know, you ought to come along. And I was up here and I wrote a letter to the, the producer of Just a Minute. And I suppose this follows on from what I was saying earlier about we're not used to your sort of voice on Radio 4. So that I'd been told that in 84. Here we were four years later. Edward Taylor, wonderful man, producer of Just a Minute for many years, was very dubious about booking me. He said to Nicholas, uh, if this goes wrong, be it on your head. <laughs> he phoned me up. Ted Taylor phoned me up to check to see what I'd be wearing. What did you think you were going to turn up in? I think, he was, I think he was, thought he was booking Sid Vicious, I'm not sure. <laughs> he also told me that he didn't swear on the programme. And I, I, I mean, he sort of, I think he was, in his own words, he told me many years later, he thought he was booking some oik. He didn't know, that's, that's what he said. Um, but I was, because I knew the show and I was very respectful towards the show and knew how to, hopefully knew how to play it, sure. uh, I was able to sort of, you know, uh, so with Peter Jones and, and Clement Freud and, and Derek Nimmo and uh, Nicholas, it was the old school of it. Kenneth had just sort of died about six months before. No blokes, it? of course. Mm? Old blokes. Oh, course. yes. Yeah, well, yes, it was sort of, um, yeah, it, it, it needed freshening up a bit, I think, at that point. But I was able to be one of the people that came in and, and, and do that and, then, and, and give it the longevity it has, you know, it has it's since demonstrated. I wondered when David Tennant was on and he got his minute. Yes. I thought, was that, the, that must have been fixed. No, not fixed. Um, well, I, mean, I just mean that you're not usually backward at coming forward to interrupt people. Well, he was, it was the first time. I mean, what the, if I'd known he was going to go for the minute, we probably would have challenged him. But uh, it, was his, it was his first time on the programme. It was the first subject he had. So you kind of, you want a bit of leeway, you want to sort of let somebody get settled in a bit, you know. The BBC made this huge fuss about, oh, the first time that anyone's ever been on the programme done this. It was complete nonsense. It first happened in 1968 <laughs> that somebody was on the programme for the first time, got the subject for the first time, and spoke for a minute, you know. So it wasn't yeah. any... Uh, but the, but you don't the, the, the news media yeah. bought it because nobody checked it up, you know. Well, of course we don't, do we? No. Um, somebody up at, somebody <laughs> up at the back there. Yes, in the striped top. Where can I get these microphones? Uh, you said earlier that you like to be non-contactable. <laughs> yes. How does it feel, now that you're so well-known, that you can't sort of pop to Sainsbury's or something without having people come up to you, smile at you, acknowledge you? Um, well, you can, you can sort of do it, you know. It's just, I mean, the only thing I would really say, I mean, most of the time you just, you know, you walk, if I walk around with a, this cap on, for example, is what I tend to do, it just sort of, that tends to sort of hide the shape of my head or something, I don't know what it does, but it, it makes me slightly less uh, visible. But then people have always, as you say, got a smile on their face generally. The one thing I always avoid, which just makes sense, is just avoid drunks, you know, because that's the thing where 
if you're in a pub situation or a club, you know, and, and somebody's drunk or their girlfriend's looked at you and smiled at you or something, you can just be sitting there minding your own business. And in the worst scenario, the drunk has already had the conversation with you in his head and he's assuming that you're not, you're not going to be very friendly. So he, he might come over and say, uh, how are you doing? And I say, oh, oh, fine, thank you. And oh, right, it's like that, is it? <laughs> you know, and, and suddenly there's a sort of... so. But apart from that, I would never argue or, or worry. If you, the worst thing to be known for, really, is a villain in a soap opera. That's because then the real ardent fans of Coronation Street or whatever it would be, or, 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 or Take the High Road... Um, <laughs> That's going back a bit. That's going back. That's a, oh, I was pleased with that, that myself. Bit, <laughs> you know, if you're a real fan of that show, and this is the villain of the day, you know, he goes, you know he's filling up his petrol in a, in, a, in, a, in a garage or something, and people are coming up and saying, you shouldn't do that to Nelly, or whatever it is, you know. So, um, no, it's always, you know, it's, a, it's a joy. Having, had, having known what normal life is like, working in the civil service and stuff, it, it's great. And you can be, and particularly in London, people are quite blasé, you know. I'm not sure the civil service and real life are interchangeable in the way you suggest. <laughs> it was, I, there was lots of good people in the civil service, but it was clear that none of them wanted, none of them left school saying, I want to be a civil servant, but it sort of drifted in, you know. Default position. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I must be one of the only people who saw you in the 1980s. Oh, really? On the fringe. I remember you. That's very thoughtful of you. <laughs> Typical Paul Merton. Uh, the question is that, uh, to put it mildly, you are very candid with some of the people on the show. Mm. How many times has the production team, A, said that to you, and B, told you they're not going to have that person back again? Um, I, it's, it generally, uh, in terms of when you have people back, I mean, it's sort of... It becomes fairly obvious that you wouldn't have them back, you know. And they, they've never said to me, don't say that or don't say that. I mean, because it's, a, because it's all edited and recorded, I should say, firsthand. I mean, there's lawyers that look at the script, the, the, uh, the uh, person in the middle script. They're there for the recording. It's quite often Ian has to say something which doesn't sound like a joke, but it sounds like it's written by a lawyer. Uh, you know, um, because it was. You know, so there's often there's retakes where the person in the middle says, "Well, of course you don't have. You, there's no proof of that, is there, Ian?" He says, uh, "No, no, 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 no proof, no proof." You know, um, so I, they're very. You know, people would love to sue us. There was oh, there was one man that did sue us, and he lost his case. Uh, now, I, thankfully, I can't remember his name because he's pretty litigious. Um, but the programme, forgive my language, but the programme referred to him as a little shit. He took exception to this, went to court, and the judge ruled in our favour that he was a little shit. <laughs> and threw the case out. Pleading veritas. And, and, I'm, and I'm glad I can't remember his name. <laughs> so am I. Yes. <laughs> Have we got some more questions for Paul? Yes, we've got two over here. You can maybe just pass it to each other when there's a lady in red and then a gentleman just along from her. I'm a huge fan of um, Have I Got News mm. For You, but something that's always puzzled me was the thinking behind having Jimmy Savile on the show. Well, <laughs> I don't... I mean, this would be back in... Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, about 2001, 2002, something like that. Uh, often people appear on the show and you don't know why, why they've come on the show. And I don't know why he came on the show. Now, of course, back in those days, um, nobody in the studio believed him to be a paedophile. I didn't. My thinking was, which I think would be a lot of people's thinking, was, well, how can he be? This isn't, you know, we didn't know, I didn't know anything about the, you know, at all about how he operated, whatever. But the simple question was, how can he be? He's the most recognisable man in Britain. How can he possibly be doing this stuff without somebody saying, that's the man that, you know... And he's not exactly a sex symbol. Well, I didn't know that sort of like victims weren't going to be believed. I didn't know that police forces were doing what they were doing. I didn't know that sort of like, you know, friend of Thatcher and all this kind of stuff, making himself sort of like particularly, you know, invulnerable. So we never knew any of that. He just was a, he was a strange guy. He came across as a strange guy, but we, you know, this other stuff wasn't known. I mean, people said all kinds of things but that's not proof and that's not evidence and so I think my feeling at the time was well he's a very strange guy but I didn't believe the stories I heard but yeah. and the gentleman just along from me no just just there, stand up hello 
Could you, do you have any idea where comedy will be 30 years from now? I think it's going to be about 500 yards over there. <laughs> I don't mean to suggest it's going downhill when I don't do that. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of, you know, the, the, you have the rise of stand-ups, you know, because for economic reasons, suddenly it's, easy, you know, it's easier to put one person on on a bill and stuff. But now a lot of younger comics are getting into stand-up comics, are getting into impro. When I, from my generation of people, uh, most comics mistrusted it, British comics. They thought it was like parlour games and, uh, and, you know, whose line can be a bit like that. Um, but in America, of course, comics have always, you know, Robin Williams, Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy, all these people have had their origins in impro clubs and stuff. But the younger generation are getting it now, I think, and they realise that actually, compared to sort of sometimes the real sort of, when I was up here doing stand-up in the 1980s, as this gentleman here was, was, was mentioning, I remember I was standing not far from where we are now by the assembly rooms, and I was playing the Pleasants. I'd been playing there for three weeks. This was towards the last of those three weeks. It was raining, I was cold. I couldn't remember how to get to the Pleasance. My system would not allow, and I thought, well, okay, I think it's this way. So I started moving towards, and I saw the, you know, the Balmoral Hotel, okay. I think it's still past here, and I had to piece it together. And I'd been going there, I'd been there 15 times already, or whatever, but just through exhaustion, tiredness, you know, lack of eating properly, you know, and all those kind of things, and just, just run down. And the, the pressure of being in front of ten people and doing the same jokes every day and, you know, you're getting sick of hearing yourself speak. So, so in the, you know, now with the impro, with five people on stage, all that sort of disappears and goes. So that's... Uh, I would never go back to stand-up again. And I'm pleased to see the younger stand-ups are getting into it because actually it's a really good way of freeing up the imagination. We talked a bit earlier about who made you laugh when you were a kid. Who makes you laugh now? I don't watch a lot of, I don't watch a lot of contemporary comedy, really. I, I, you know, it's sort of... Um, one reason is I have such a good memory for jokes that somebody came up to me once a few years ago and said, you did my joke on Have I Got News For You the other week. And I hadn't worked with them since 1986. And it's true, and they pointed out, it was more or less the same joke. Which I would never deliberately use somebody else's joke, but it sinks in and it's there. And, and actually, I, I'm much more interested in, you know, when I sort of downtime, it's, maybe it's too much of a busman's holiday, but I, I love documentaries, you know, uh, you know, whether human interest documentaries. You know, sometimes I'm in the mood for these mad documentaries with Channel 5, which are basically police interceptors, where they just... <laughs> They film people in the dark in infrared cameras running across meadows. I get transfixed by that. <laughs> Sometimes you just, just, you know, you just want to turn your brain off and just watch somebody trying to escape in Shropshire. <laughs> Which brings us back to malaria pools, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yes, on the, on the aisle there and then up the back. Do you ever see yourself following Sandy Toxvig and setting up your own political party? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I sort of, uh, I, 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 I think show business is a, is a much is a much gentler profession. <laughs> well, it isn't really. It's equally as savage. But no, no, I, I'm, uh, I, I, I'm happy where I am. One of the curious things you said when mm. you got uh, tapped up, as they say in the football trade, for have I got news for you, mm. was that you know you, you didn't fancy yourself on it because you weren't interested in current events. Well, I, I mean, most of my, I mean, I used to pride myself on, on, on doing stuff that wasn't topical. You know, I would start off by saying when I was doing the stand-up, um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a topical comedian. During the Blitz, <laughs> in the Second World War, my dad used to say, don't worry about the bombs. The only bomb you've got to worry about is the one that's got your name written on it. That scared the next-door neighbours. <laughs> Mr and Mrs Doodlebug. <laughs> so that was my opening joke in 1984. So, <laughs> so you can see why I was reluctant to push myself forward for a topical news quiz. <laughs> Gentleman up the back, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you show impeccable taste, um, mentioning Tony Hancock as an influence. Mm. But it, it just interests me what he means for you professionally as a comic, because... In two respects, he's not kind of like the thing you're most known for. A, highly, totally scripted, beautifully scripted material, rather than improvised. And secondly, he has that kind of melancholy, which I don't really associate with, um, certainly just a minute. Mm. So I just wondered, you know, how, is, how does it affected you as a, as a comedian? Where are you? I can't see you. Can you put your hand oh, up? Right, so, yeah, OK. Um, well, I, first of all, I would say, that if anybody's, there's, there's a show on just at the assembly here where Kevin McNally is playing Tony Hancock in some Hancock episodes. I went to see it the other day. I, if there's a finer comic performance in Edinburgh, I, I'd be very surprised. It's superb. He is wonderful. Um, it's more than an impression. It's a transformation. It, he, it's, he's helped by certain things. His head's roughly the same shape, which seems silly, but that helps the, helps the effect. Um, 
Ray and Alan, the, the guys that wrote Hancock, I mean, there was a sort of... Uh, we see sometimes see Hancock as a melancholy comic. I don't think genuinely he was, not in the, in the material that they wrote for him. Uh, of course, because, he, you know, the, the people who know of his suicide in 1968 tends to sort of cloud our view back on him. But when Ray and Alan, Gorton and Simpson, worked with him throughout the, you know, from 54 to about 1961, they never saw... He said he was never like that. It was only when he left them they saw that. So... And what Kevin's doing at the, at the assembly isn't melancholic at all. I think it's sort of, uh, and in the end, it's just the sheer writing, the quality of the writing of Ray and Allen sort of lures you in, really. So although we sometimes detect a melancholic streak in Hancock, generally people didn't spot that too much at the time. I think mean, maybe it's in there, but there's also more, uh, you know, uh, jollity and enthusiasm than we might remember. There was one, they did an episode of Hancock's Half Hour on the television where he had a very heavy cold. It's called The Cold, and he's wearing a, the Astrakhan collar, and he's wearing the sort of Homburg hat, and he's looking a bit miserable into the thing, because he's got a cold for the show. But that's the one they always tend to use, that photograph, you know, sort of it's like... It's interesting, though, because you see in the book, I mean, that, seemed, that came over as the one thing that really scared you, because he was such a, a, a comedic... Icon oh yes. Well, it was madness to do. It. I mean, I, I did this series for ITV. It was madness to do it. But I, I redo Hancock scripts, and uh, I thought, well, I can't. I won't do a Hancock impression. I won't do what Kevin's doing because I couldn't do that. Um, but I thought, well, in the end, well, am I going to say no to this? And my story will be, well, I could have, I, you know, I could have done a series of Ray Gorton and Alan Simpson, but I, you know, I, I thought the Daily Mail might not like it. So, you know, so you've got to go with it. And I, I was so pleased I did. And I, I still meet them up, you know, meet up with them three or four times a year for dinner, you know, and stuff. They're, they're great guys. And uh, they sort of, they're working class guys who are from the same sort of neck of the woods as I am, really. So there's that sort of connection as well. But so I mean, you didn't have to worry about each other's accents? No, indeed not. No, indeed not. No, it's sort of, uh, but the one thing that was difficult with the Tony Hancock thing was the first one we did was the 12 Angry Men, which has got this great speech in it which I completely didn't do a good job on because what I had in my head was I had Tony's delivery in my head and I didn't want to do it like that because then people would say oh he's imitating Hancock sort of thing but it, there was no other way I mean and I wish I'd if I'd had another go at it now maybe 20 years later I probably would do it a little bit more like him it's the thing about um it's a short speech about he's doing a sort of address to the in the jury room to the rest of the jury and at one point he says does Magna Carta mean nothing to you did she die in vain <laughs> That poor Hungarian peasant girl who made King John sign the pledge at Runnymede and close the boozers at half past ten. <laughs> but you see, I didn't do it like that. <laughs> There's a touch of Tony in there. I should have been more confident, perhaps, at the time. But as the series progressed, I, I got better. Ladies and gentlemen, we could listen to this for another 60 minutes, but we can't because somebody else is coming in here. But Paul's not going to go away. He's going to turn... Where are we? He's going to turn left and left again into the signing tent where you can buy copies of this... Very engaging book. I, I perhaps missold it because I picked three chapters which were quite serious. It's a very funny, very honest book, I, and I'm sure you'll enjoy reading it. And Paul will sign it for you if you meet him up in the tent. There's a paperback version. This is the hardback version. So there's a, there's I get a paperback the version. I get the posh one. Yeah. Before we thank Paul, could I ask you to thank Linda for doing a cracking job? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Merton. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.